Winter College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, January 17, 1972, Bible 322-24, Biblical Archaeology, New Testament Part, continuing the study of Blakeoff's book, Archaeology and the New Testament, taking up the fate of Palestine and calling that something about the New Testament manuscript. Now then, archaeology and the fate of Palestine. We went through some of this already. Mr. Harris, were you here when we um, debated the topic of the time and place of the final? Did you agree to having it on uh, Friday afternoon at 1 o'clock? All right, just before you got in, I announced, please, everybody in this class come down to the front of the chapel where you can be easily recognized and uh, the third force in the chapel distinguished from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> um, you know what I mean. And uh, we will have it there. And if it does happen that it has to be held in the science hall, I'll notify everybody here Wednesday. There's a question about the uh, number of lapwoods we can collect for the, for the chapel. Now in... Um, Chapter 12, Archaeology in the Fate of Palestine. First of all, somebody asked us, dear Mr. Betty, you want to have something on Mithraism again. 182. 182 and 184. 184. 182, what evidence of Mithraism was found on the Roman wall across the island of Britain? Now, let's uh, put it as a place in the book that, that tells us. 182, this is page 167. Page 167, and it speaks of two uh, signs of Mithraism, the remains of which were found on the Roman wall, on the ruins of the Roman wall. On the slope below the camp is the cave which housed the Mithras Chapel of the garrison. There is little left to indicate the legionaries who once worshipped here, but that the legionaries once worshipped here, but one inscription has come to light which reveals the depth to which the cult touched the soldiers' emotions. It reads, quote, To the best and greatest god, Mithras, the unconquerable lord of the ages, Publius Proculinus, a centurion, dedicates this for himself and his son in discharge of a vow willingly and rightly made. Mrs. Mary. Well, it says below the yeah near the wall. I guess it wasn't actually they wouldn't put a shrine on the on the top of the wall, but uh, below it, either on the north or the south side, probably on the south side, which would be the sheltered side. Now the 182, it is the second of the two shrines on the Roman wall. Now that means like we'd say uh, uh, Geneva College on the Beaver River. We don't mean it's floating out on the water, but it's located adjacent to the Beaver River, you know. We, we use language like this. <clears throat> on the Roman Wall, which is of greater interest. Indeed, its discovery was quite as striking as that of the London Shrine. This shrine is at Carrollburg and came to light accidentally. The season of 1949 was remarkably dry, and with the shrieking of a peak bog, the outlines of a little place of worship came to light which was immediately recognized as a mithraeum. Then the next page tells how um, the archaeologists went to work to conserve this before it would be lost forever. Realizing that winter would again flood the ruins, 
late Professor Ian Richmond, the discoverer, made hasty arrangements for a competent team to examine it. The work was a triumph of modern archaeological research, for the shrine was, after all, not built of brick or stone. It was a modest structure of laughing plaster, <clears throat> and fragile remains of the sort are uncommonly difficult to interpret and explain. The archaeologists nevertheless succeeded. They were able to demonstrate the periodic destruction and restoration of the temple according as Mithraism or Christianity won the ascendancy among the commanding officers of the local garrison. You see, it flips off back and forth, uh, depending on who's in charge. They were able to show the building was finally destroyed in the time of Constantine, when the empire became officially Christian. Mr. Betty, when would that be? Constantine? Oh. Wait a minute, you're thinking of Nero. 300 and something, yeah. Constantine's Edict of Toleration 312, I believe, or 311. The archaeologist Uncanny Sluicing was able to show that the floor of the aisle was strewn with feathers, that pine cones were used to make an aromatic altar fuel, and that chickens and geese were eaten in the ritual feast associated with the cult. All right, now that's 182. What's the other one you wanted answered? 184. 184. What elements of the ritual of Mithraism were formally parallel to elements of Christianity? Which is at the bottom of page 169, the top of page 170. In the first place, the observance of December 25. Remember we discussed this last time, December 25, uh, traditionally called Christmas. This is, however, really the birthday of Mithras. And uh, then it goes on to speak of the and so forth, and that uh, this was really the Roman festival of the Saturnalia in honor of Saturn, which was considered a pretty naughty affair, but um, it was okay to the Mithraists. And when Christianity took it over, of course, they took the dates, but not the, uh, not the essential ideas or ideology of it, so that it became associated with the birth of Jesus. Now, I think also... They had a kind of a, uh, a communion service, a sacramental feast. I don't see it mentioned here, though. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Bottom 169. Few details. Some significance in the communion service. That is, the, the Mithraists. If you could bring them back by time machine to a present-day Christian church or cathedral, and they would see the Mass or the Lord's Supper going on, this would um, ring a bell. They would... Uh, that's something like what we knew back when we lived in worship Mithras. All right, what does he mean, Mr. by saying that these are merely formal, formally parallel? Yeah, the real meaning is different. Now, the school I taught in in China when war broke out, I had to come home in the spring of 1940, and just before that, the whole delegation of Japanese um, Officials came in and they wanted to get the use of these school buildings, school guards and clothes, which was built by a British organization. And they said to me, you should let us have this. We want a school for communication. We're going to teach radio, telegram, telegraph, telephone, road construction, surveying, and this kind of thing in this school. Because it was established for educational purposes, and you and we are both engaged in the great task of education. And I was training Chinese Christian young people to become um, evangelists and preachers of the Word of God, and they were going to train them to 
operate uh, radio stations and telegraph boxes, and this is both called education. Therefore, um, I should let them have it. And I ducked out of this and said, well, I'm only the custodian. I don't own these buildings or this campus. And the, and the Board of Trustees that owns it is located in London, England, and I'll give you the address. I suggest you send a cablegram and ask them if you can have it for school communications because this is beyond my powers to grant. So I got them off my neck with that. They, they agreed to that, all right. And they didn't get any place. After the war really broke out, they took it over anyhow. But <clears throat> the, uh, that was a merely formal resemblance, you see. A college of witchcraft in England where you can get a bachelor's degree in witchcraft and I guess a master's degree too is engaged in education and so is Geneva College. But uh, that's a purely formal resemblance. The essence of what they get and what we get are exactly the opposite, the one to the other. See? And one he says here that uh, some of these different cults and mystery religions had a formal resemblance to Christianity. This is in certain external features. Let's say they ring a bell before the service for mystics and for Christianity too. It doesn't mean these two are the same. It simply means that there's some way of telling people it's time for church. And then, so that's a formal resemblance. Now, uh, Mr. Bay, are your questions answered? All right. Anybody else got any on uh, mysticism? Well, uh, Mrs. Johnson, why did it die out and Christianity survived? All right. Could, could you have been a member of the Mystery religion? No. <laughs> not only not a priest, not, a, not even an ordinary common rank-and-file member. This had more in common with a secret order than it, uh, or fraternity than with a church, really. Women and children, too bad, but they just simply weren't included in this system. And in Christianity, of course, they were. And um, there was lacking um, a universal appeal that Christianity had for the poor, the needy, the uh, underprivileged, the uh, victims of injustice, as well as uh, all sorts of minority classes. And, of course, women who are not a minority, they're very like the majority of the human race, but Methodism certainly shortchanged them, and Christianity didn't. And uh, to sum this all up, there was, um, even at the lowest ebb of Christianity, there was an evidence in it of compassion and of the love of God who gave his son to save us that was lacking in Methodism. Added to this the fact that it was no sense to get up in the order of Methodism. Remember, we talked a little bit about the initiations, and these were considered really something to have gone through. And um, this would scare some people away right there. And uh, certainly, oh, this was uh, in honor of a false divinity. It was a religion of achievement rather than of uh, the grace of God. And um, so it is, well, let's say the power of God was in Christianity as it was not in Mithraism, and uh, this was true also of the appeal of it. And so it died out. And Mithraism today is a curiosity for scholars to research and Christianity, with all its faults and shortcomings, is a living faith today that establishes colleges and teaches the Bible and archaeology and so forth. All right, now anything further on Mithraism. All right, archaeology and the fate of Palestine. Now, the Roman Colosseum, 
we'll run over a little of this again. The Roman Colosseum, this tremendous building. When were the two lower and therefore more basic levels of this uh, built or constructed? All right, I'll give you a clue. When did Jerusalem fall to the Romans? This is A.D. 70. And this was built in the 70s of the first century, um, the Colosseum, by the Roman Emperor. And uh, therefore, it is highly probable that much of the... You know, they didn't have any tractors or hydraulic lifts or anything like this. A lot of this was done by manpower. But a great deal of the very heavy construction works of the Colosseum was done by Jewish captives who were taken from Jerusalem when the city was destroyed. It is estimated that um, a million eight hundred thousand or something like that Jews were killed. Less than one in ten escaped death at the fall of Palestine to the Romans. And of those that did, most were sold into slavery. Only a very few managed really to get away. And it is highly probable that a lot of this backbreaking labor was done by Jewish captives for whom the light and hope of life had simply flickered out. They had resisted Rome and they had failed. And what is there that um, evidence that indicates that Jewish captives did have something to do with this? What is the Arch of Titus and what is pictured on it in the sculpture? Mr. Nair? Yeah, there's seven branch golden candlesticks. You know, we have candlesticks set up at a wedding that have seven, seven candles on. That's common. Seven candles at a wedding. This had one in the middle and three on each side. That would make a picture of it. You see where it is there. In this book of Claypox. Bottom of page 179, you can see what it looked like. This undoubtedly sculptured on the Archipedus there from the real thing which the Romans had taken when they destroyed the temple. They naturally took what was valuable before they burned the place to pieces. And so it came to Rome. Now, who remembers, Mr. Thompson, do you remember what happened in the end of this seven-branch golden candlestick? And where would you have to go to find it today? Yeah, Alaric the Goth. Nobody here knows German. Is this right? My ability to quote this poem in German is wasted. <laughs> Alaric, no, it's no use if you don't understand German. Alaric the God, the, the, um, the Alaric and Ostrogoth, I believe, the East Goth. This is a Germanic tribe. Now, they weren't um, like the wild men of Borneo, but culturally they were far below the Romans. And they conquered with a rough and ready zeal and uh, very little regard for the cultural and um, all the um, civilized history of the Roman world it didn't appeal to them. They came from the wide open places and the cruder forms of life. And they captured and destroyed the city of Rome. I believe the date was, I'll just give it a 410. And uh, according to a reliable tradition, they captured this uh, seven branch golden candlestick, probably a lot of other stuff too. And their leader, Alaric, died. And uh, they were afraid that um, some Roman would dig his grave up, especially since they were going to bury a lot of gold and other loot in his grave with him. Maybe they wouldn't want Alaric, but they'd want the gold. 
So they hit on this interesting gimmick, the Bucento River in central Italy. It's a small river. It's uh, more, I guess, than the beaver out here, quite a bit, but about like uh, Conoquinetan Creek, maybe. But anyhow, they uh, diverted it to a different channel for a while. Then they dug a grave in the bottom of where it had been and buried Alaric on his horse in this hole at the bottom of the river and with him all his weapons and everything and this golden candlestick and other stuff that they had taken, supposing perhaps this would do him some good in the life after death. I doubt it very much, but that's apparently what they believed. And then uh, covered the grave in and turned the river back. So to find out, maybe it could be done today with metal detectors, I don't know, but to find out really where this is, you'd have to divert the Bucento River again and start at one end of it and work toward the other and dig up everything. It would be a fantastic achievement, though, if with modern electronic metal detection devices this could be detected and found. And uh, the value of this just for the gold in it would be fabulous, let alone its value as a historical uh, exhibit and antique. So if any of you um, can't find any kind of a job when you get out of college, maybe you could take this up and see what you could do. It would be a fascinating discovery if you could make it, and it's probably there all right. I don't think anybody has ever found it or dug it up. It's a good safe place to bury something. You bury it in a hole in the bottom of the river and then turn the river back. So that's what happened to that. Now then, uh, <coughs> Masvidal. 109. What is it, or was it, and where was it located, and who built it? Well, um, this was a fort. And you realize that um, today, of course, this would be attacked by artillery of aircraft, which were unknown in time when this was built. And so, uh, I'll bring out Wednesday too, so that can be passed around point. Uh, fort built there by Herod the Great. He was the Herod that was Herod when Jesus was born, starting from 4 BC. Therefore, he is the scoundrel <coughs> and wicked man who had the boy babies at and around Bethlehem slaughtered to be sure to get the one that was born king of the Jews, which, however, he failed to accomplish. It would also be the one that uh, lied to the wise men who came and made die and said, I want to go too and worship him. Come and tell me what, when you have found him. Uh, Downing's book, The Bible and Flying Saucers, um, suggests that it was a flying saucer that led the wise men to the place. He said, a star would be so high. How could you say a star was directly over a particular building or a stable? You look at a star, and that's one of the clearest. Look at Mars or Venus, which is a planet. And you can see it's on the horizon or it's up overhead, but how could you say it was over a particular house or building? How could it lead you to a house? Even a comet couldn't. And so this man Downing, who wrote this fascinating book, and please note I'm not endorsing everything here, I'm only telling you about it. And don't uh, get me accused of being a crackpot. Uh, it's a fascinating book on the man believes in the Bible. He got his PhD at the University of Edinburgh as a thesis on the Bible and space and time. He says this was a UFO, unidentified flying object, which the Magi recognized. They had seen it before, and when they left Herod's palace, they saw it again. And it came to a stop at a height, but directly over the place where the young child lived. There's some plausibility to that. 
And once you accept the event as historical and don't do like the mythologizers and say it's behind anyhow, if you believe it really happened, it involves a problem about, you see, you could see a star, you could see an unusual configuration in the, in the sky, but how this could lead people to a particular building. You go to the planetarium, they put on a show about what the sky looked like on the, uh, as they had figured it out night when Jesus was born, and uh, those diminishing phenomena, but nothing that would lead you to a particular building in a particular town. But this is what the Bible claims. Well, this was Herod, and he built this fortress, uh, one of three, to um, sort of entrench himself as king. Herodian, Macarius, and Masada. Macarius is the one in which John the Baptist was when the orders came for him to be beheaded. Why was John the Baptist beheaded? His, not his daughter, but his um, improperly married wife's daughter. She was not properly married to him, and John the Baptist had said, it's her sermon in the Bible. It is not lawful for thee to have her. And this cost him his head. That's that sermon. But he preached it. He was no compromise. Jesus said there hadn't risen a greater than John the Baptist. And... Um, this woman could not forgive him that. But he had told the plain truth about her moral character. And she got her daughter, this fancy little uh, tap dancer, whatever you call her, little sprig of hair ribbon, to, uh, who uh, danced and pleased Herod, who was drunk, probably, and the men with him. And he said, I'll give you anything you want up to the half of the kingdom. And she goes out and says, Mama, what do I ask for? And some second, like to have the head of John the Baptist in a dish. And Herod sends him having has him beheaded. This was the kind of government they had in Palestine under Herod. You know, there has to be a hell. For people that don't get what's coming to them in this life, there has to be. Anyway, uh, Macarius, that's where John the Baptist was beheaded. And the Herodian was another report, and Masada was the third. And this, uh, we read, uh, 45, 36 B.C., a very strong and impregnable place is supposed to be. What is the importance of this in connection with the um, final outcome of uh, the war in Palestine, the Great Jewish-Roman War? Well, who won this war? This is, this is Johnson. The Romans won it. And they pursued it right on through, and the last little vestiges of Jewish resistance, they searched them out and, and, and get away with them. Killed people, or maybe some escaped and ran away, but they destroyed everything. <clears throat> this place, after, let's say, Jerusalem fell, this was the last and final holdout of a band of them. Um, you can call them fanatics if you want, of um, very um, resistant Jews who would not give in and who preferred to be killed rather than to surrender to the Romans. And they entrenched themselves in this fortress. Now, notice the description here, bottom of page 181. Remnants have been found, and, well, I'll display that. Josephus. Remember who Josephus was? He was a Jew, and first he fought on the Jewish side, and the Romans captured him, but he was such a politician, he managed to butter them up, and they not only spared his life, but gave him special favors as a um, historian and war correspondent. And ever after that, Josephus was um, 
name was in bad favor among the Jews who considered him pro-Roman. He saved his life by sort of toadying up to the enemy. That's so secret. However, he is our only source of information for a lot of this stuff. He was, he was Jewish and worked for the Romans. And um, he describes it. The details of area and length, the fortifications and architecture of Herod's fortress and its two royal abodes, after the fashion which makes them so dry plans to read, but a blessing to archaeologists. He describes, too, the storehouses of dates and corn laid up for siege, all of which he alleges in the clear dry air of the locality remained edible and fresh for long years in the rock reservoir. Remnants have been found in the long storeroom. It was a well-locked, well-stocked, and well-armed stronghold which fell into the possession of the last desperate Jewish fighters of the Great Rebellion. Ablaze with nationalistic fervor, the nation only fell back beaten when the ashes of Jerusalem covered a million dead, and the land had been combed systematically at an appalling cost of soil and blood. Titus, as we have said, went home for his triumph, while a remnant retired to the fortress <coughs> which they had seized at the first outbreak of war and prepared to fight it out. Titus left his general children the task of taking the stronghold without saying too much in Rome about the last valiant band who were still holding out in the Judean wilderness. Now you notice the picture, page 183. Like the pictures of Mount Sinai, this is a, uh, on the shores of the Dead Sea, a very forsaken and lonely and rugged and uh, sort of an uninhabited-looking place. This is an air photographic place. If you would photograph this from the ground level, it would loom high up above your head. But even the highest mountains taken from an air photo don't, um, don't look um, so, so high or so big. Now, um, what was the... Um, does it say anything about how many people were, were hidden out in there? Not much today, how many? Nearly a thousand Jews, yeah, nearly a thousand. And uh, these people fought it out to the death and died rather than surrendered to the Romans. Many of them very likely committed suicide. There's a mass suicide. And um, particularly touching, um, bottom of page 184, question 192, Two women hid five children in remote cellars and concealed themselves with food and drink. When the Romans staged their final assault, burst in and paused in wondering suspicion at the awful solitude, the two survivors came out and told what had happened. The Romans themselves, said Josephus, could take no pleasure in the deed. Well, that's all that were left. And everything else that's believe that uh, some of these men killed their own wife and children and then killed themselves rather than be captured by the Romans. And you know, this is the kind of thing that was prophesied by Jesus. You go read Matthew 24 and the parallels in Luke 21 and Mark 13. <clears throat> At that time there will be a time of trouble such as there never was on this world or ever shall be. And Jesus predicted the woe that would come on the Jewish people because they knew not the time of their visitation. Their Messiah had come and they did not accept him. They rejected him and said, we have no king but Caesar. And then this came on them, this awful, awful destruction. Well, it's a sad story. Now then, one more thing before we go on a Greek manuscript here. The Bar Kokhla Rebellion. A.D. 70, the Romans 
thoroughly destroyed Jerusalem and everything else almost in the Holy Land that they considered worth destroying. Incidentally, were any Christians killed in the destruction of Jerusalem? I don't think uh, Blakelock says it, but I can tell you the answer to that. You know, Mr. Dean. Well, the Christians remembered the prediction of Jesus. When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, let not him that is on the housetop come down to take the things in his house. This does not mean stay on the housetop. It means come off the, down the outside stairway and beat it, head for the hill. And don't go back to collect your household goods or your property because it may be too late. This is the text the minister used to preach against women wearing their hair in a top knot. The top knot come down. As him that is on the house top not come down. He was to say it has nothing to do with that. But the early Christians remembered this. And before the Romans had put a ring of armor around Jerusalem and before it was impossible to get away, they had gotten out of there across the Jordan River and away deep into Transjordan to a place called Pella which was outside of the war zone, and there were few, if any at all, of Christians in Jerusalem when the city finally fell. They lost their property, they lost their homes, but they saved their lives by remembering the word that Jesus had said and fleeing the country and across the Jordan to a, a different area where the war was not being fought. Now then, that was in the year 70. You would think the Jews would be finished for keeps, wouldn't you? Over a million killed and uh, nine-tenths of them put to death and risk killed into slavery, the city destroyed. However, they tried to make a comeback and staged a second rebellion. And this one is um, the uh, Bar Kokhba Rebellion. This was in the uh, the day here, 135, I believe. Let's see. 132. Hadrian, the Roman emperor, uh, quite callous uh, and insensitive to the conscience and feelings of the Jews, tried to build in Jerusalem a pagan shrine that was an offense to every Jew in the world. What was this a shrine of? What was it? The Olympian Zeus. Now, every Jew in the world, including the ones who weren't very religious, would cheerfully have died to prevent that happening. That kind of thing had happened before, way back in the Maccabean period. A shrine of Olympian Zeus, the very symbol of the idolatry that the Jews had come to hate. This was going up in, in Jerusalem. And uh, this, this got the Jews all up in the air. So promptly there is a false messiah. Now this guy's name, this the messiah's name is Simon bar Kosiba, bottom of page 186. That's his original name. Simon bar means son of Kosiba. But he changed this to a messianic title, Bar Kokhba, son of the star, and put himself out as the Messiah. You recall, Jesus had warned against false messiahs. If they say he's in the desert, go not out. If he's in the secret chambers, do not go to sea. As the lightning comes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And he warned against these False Christs and false pretended messiahs. However, the Christians didn't fall for this guy, but the non-Christian Jews did. And so uh, here he puts himself out to be a messiah and becomes a leader against the Romans. And they tried again of all the insane folly to think that this little weakened 
drunken country of Judea could fight the Roman Empire. You see, the only way they could have any kind of a chance would be if God was helping them, and surely he wasn't. And so they failed again. Now we have coins from Simon Bar Kokhba and uh, inscriptions. There's a papyrus letter on uh, um, page 187 written to him by one of Bar Kokhba's lieutenants or subordinate officers. And they tried again to fight it out and again they failed. And this time the Romans destroyed Jerusalem again and they gave orders that no Jew was allowed to even live there. And they changed the name of it from Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, to Ilia Capitolina. This is a Roman name, Ilia, A-E-L-I-A, Capitolina, and this it was called thereafter. Now, it's a sad story. It's no wonder that Blakelock called it fate, the fate of Palestine. This is the, um, the outcome of a people who would not believe on their Messiah and rejected him and what came upon them as a result of this. A bare 40 years and then again later. Mr. Kinnery. Oh, yeah, he got a big following. He organized the whole country and, and worked up a real revolution against the Romans and claimed he was the Messiah but also commander-in-chief of all the Jews that he could collect. And by this time, see, 70 to 100 would be... Uh, 30 years to 132, 62 years later, all the people that had anything to do with the first fall of Jerusalem, this would be their grandchildren and great-grandchildren of any survivors. And so it's a long time later, 62 years. Um, you'd take 62 from 1972, it'd take you back to 1910, before World War I, to see how long ago this was in terms of their situation. Now then, he um, <clears throat> worked this up and um, was quite somebody for a while. But it failed and came absolutely to nothing, and it was ruthlessly crushed by the Romans. And this time they destroyed the city even more effectively than before. There was no temple to destroy, but they destroyed everything else and uh, put up new signs, and it's the Roman city now, Elia, Capitolina, and not Jerusalem anymore. And it remains this way, I think, until the Western Roman Empire pretty well collapsed. And it was under the Byzantine Empire for a while, in the 600s, the Mohammedans got it. In the 1000s, towards the year 1100, the Crusaders got it from Western Europe, France and Germany and England, and held it a while, then lost it again. Then the Seljuk Turks, then the Ottoman Turks, and then finally in 1917, the British, in World War I, under General Allenby, campaigning up from Egypt. And when they came to Jerusalem, which Allenby's soldiers had captured. General Allenby, a Christian man and believer in the word of God, got off his horse and took off his cap and held it in his hand and said he would not ride with his hat on into the city where Christ was crucified and got off and walked into the city. So it was under a British mandate after World War I for several years and then finally after... Uh, World War II, and after many years of um, all sorts of strife and, and tension, uh, it was divided into Israel and Jordan, and uh, one is the Republic of Israel, which is Jewish, the other is uh, Mohammedan. 
and uh, that's the situation today. And you realize the, the tensions have not been resolved. It's still extremely tense there, and uh, the future is very uncertain. And we hope and pray there won't be a third, third world war. But if there is one, it's very likely that's where it would begin. That's the fourth spot on the map of the world. And who made this awful mistake? The British. Under Lawrence of Arabia in World War One. Did you ever hear the fellow that promised two different girls he'd marry each of them on the same date in two different churches? Well, I wonder, Mr. James, that puts you in an embarrassing spot. <clears throat> when the war was touch and go, Germany, Turkey, you see, was on the side of the Germans. World War One. The British, under Lawrence of Arabia, who was a pension agent for them, promised the, uh, the Arabs all sorts of benefits if the Allies would win the war. At the same time, they wanted the money that the Jews, especially in America here and other places, could contribute. So the Balfour Declaration in London promised the Jews that if the Allies won the war, Palestine would become a Jewish homeland. Now, if the Turks and the Germans had won World War I, there wouldn't have been any problem about this. But the serious trouble was the British, French, and Americans won it. And the result of this was the British had two sets of promises, one of the Arabs and one of the Jews, that conflicted. And if they're going to do what they promised to the Arabs, all right, they can't keep their promise to the Jews, and vice versa. Let's put the fellow in a spot. So I like not to promise anybody to marry them, but if you're going to promise anyone, well, just promise one at a time. Don't promise two girls that you'll marry them, because, you know, the other one that gets left out is likely to take a dim view. And... <laughs> This is, this is what is the real root of the present trouble in Palestine. Things have been promised and given to the Jews, the Israelis, that the Arabs consider their rights and vice versa. And how are you ever going to settle this to do real justice to both parties? And the wisest things in diplomacy in the world haven't been able to settle it. And uh, so they're on the verge of fighting it out again. All right, now something on biblical manuscripts. We'll make a beginning on this and finish it Wednesday. This refers you here to a half a dozen books, all of which are in our college library. This book by Finnegan is particularly good for its pictures. Now, you don't need to read any of these. What you need to learn is on these mimeographs or duplicated sheets here, but you may want to look this up at some future time, just for your general education and culture. Finnegan is particularly good for its pictures and so forth. And it's a very good book to understand and to read. It's written in a semi-popular kind of a style. Kenyon, Sims, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, another one that's got very good pictures, a newer book, John Van Pictorial Bible Dictionary. It's in the library in the, in the East Reading Room among reference books. And Douglas, the New Bible Dictionary, this is not the New Bible Commentary, it's the New Bible Dictionary, a very good book, costs about 12 bucks though, with pictures and articles. And this little book by Metzger that I want to show you now. Now, Metzger is a textual critic. He deals with establishing the genuine text of the New Testament manuscript. And this book is called The Text of the New Testament. It's... Um, Ah, it's a dad from now, uh, Father's Day, 1965. My son was just killed the other day. Um, 1964, Oxford University Press. 
the text of the New Testament, its transmission, corruption, and restoration. Bruce Sennett, to professor of New Testament language and literature at Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, Princeton Seminary, of which I am an alumnus, and where my father taught, is not what it used to be. However, Metzger deals with a technical subject. This is not involved in theological controversy. The text of the New Testament, this is a highly technical specialty. And this book is by far the best on this subject that, that I know anything about. I want to show you, and I'll pass this around to get a look at some of the manuscripts. And, and then I'll pass it around again on next time. In particular, I want to show you this one. Codex Beatus. Well, I'm told I'm good authority. Chester Beatus and Irishman, who gave a lot of money to uh, the recovery and preservation of these Paris manuscripts. Chester Beatus of Paris, third century from the 200s. This is the oldest known manuscript of any part of the Bible, especially of the epistles of Paul. Two papyrus manuscripts, and over the page, this one with four columns, beautifully written on vellum or cleaned and bleached parchment, pitched is the um, Codex Sinaiticus. This is the one that was discovered at the Sinai Monastery. And over here, Codex Bezi, that's the later one, 56th century. And several others given here in several pictures, but. Codex Sinaiticus is all in capital letters only, and they're beautifully handwritten, too. Some of these others are in um, small letters, sort of a running script. The later ones from the Middle Ages are in the small letters. Those are called minuscule, and the ones in capital letters are called uncial. And um, Several, several different ones in here, but the Codex Sinaiticus is the most beautifully written of anyone. Now, I'll pass this around and take a look at it, and those of you who don't get to see it today, you said when. Yeah? No, this is a manuscript of the Bible. Where did we get our English New Testament? We got it from, translated from Greek manuscripts. And the Greek manuscripts, there are over a thousand of them, and most of them are quite late, written all in the 1000s maybe 1200s, just before the invention of printing. But they go back, you see, each later one is a copy of an earlier one. And the earliest that have been discovered are the uh, papyrus, the Chester Beatty papyrus collection. That goes back to the middle of the 200s, 100 years after the Apostles. Jesus was crucified about the year 30. Uh, some of the New Testament books are written about the year 50, and this manuscript collection on papyrus in the Cinema Museum, and uh, part of it in Dublin, Ireland now, written about 250. Then these, these great uncial codexes in capital letters on sheepskin, they go back to about 350. And there's three of them that are about that early, 350 to 400. Then there's other uncial manuscripts that are later, from the 500 and 600, and then a tremendous number of minuscule or small letter manuscripts in a running sort of a script in small letters, like we'd say lowercase, and those come mostly from the uh, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,600, and there, like that, see? But these are not just parallel to the Bible. These are the sources of our Bible, from which we get our Bible. Yeah, now, Mrs. John. Hmm? This uh, Chester Beatty collection, 
It was discovered, um, I'm not absolutely sure, I think in Egypt. Very likely in a monastery, though, or in the remains of one. But I think in Egypt. That's about the only place where papyrus documents have... See, papyrus is extremely perishable. And Egypt is the place where the... Um, the humidity is extremely low. That's one reason why papyrus things, and in the, in the tombs, the wooden objects, like chairs, have lasted, whereas in other parts of the world they would long ago have decayed. I think in Egypt, I can find out though. But it is today in a properly air-conditioned uh, set of showcases, uh, most of it in um, Dublin, Ireland. Now, this is described here, question 199. Ah. All right, we made a start on it. We'll pick it up later. And uh, this, you realize, is a fascinating study to compare manuscripts and by um, recognized principles to decide where there's a variation, which one is correct. This has been reduced to an almost exact science. There was very little guesswork left in it, although sometimes there is a little bit. But the, the rules for doing this have been so refined and so tested that the we have today virtually the whole New Testament as it was written by the original writer. And where there's a little scrap of doubt left, it's about insignificant things like you're going to spell the name John with one N or two or something like that. 